So if you want to turn in your Bibles this morning, we're going to be skipping ahead a little bit and then we're going to go back to, um, going to go back for our last couple messages in the Ephesians series. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 today, starting in verse 10, if you want to turn there in your Bible. When I originally went through Firefighter 1, it's because I joined a part-time fire department to try to bring in a little bit of extra money. And they hired me initially to be a paramedic, but then they made the decision that everybody had to be dual certified, meaning um, you couldn't just be a paramedic, but you had to go to firefighter school too. And for some reason, I had always try, I'd always just avoided becoming a firefighter, but I said, well, why not? It looks like fun. And so they signed me up for a class, and it started late July and early August. Now, in Kenosha County, it's a little farther south than us, when we get up into the like mid-80s, 90s, or toward 100, it's, it's warm up here. But it's more of a dry heat. Down in southern, southeast Wisconsin, it's a little bit more humid because we're so close to Lake Michigan. So when it's... Um, 100 degrees and humidity about 80%, it's hot. It's like walk outside, your t-shirts are instantly drenched because you're sweating so bad. Well, that's when I decided to, or when they actually signed me up to take Firefighter 1. And during the first part of that class, every time we had the practical portion of the class, the instructor would put us through about 20 minutes or a half an hour of take, putting on our stuff and taking it back off putting on our stuff, taking it back off. Reason for that is because the state test for firefighter, you have to be able to put everything on in the correct order in under two minutes. And it doesn't seem like a lot, but when you're talking about you know, big heavy stuff and, and, and checking everything and tightening the straps correctly and all that, you know, it, it takes all two minutes to get all that stuff on. First your hood goes on, then his pants, then the suspenders, then the coat, you kneel down, check your tank's pressure to make sure it's full. You turn it on and then you throw it over the top of your back, strap everything in. Then you put your mask on, make sure you get a nice airtight seal, tighten all the straps in the back. Then you pull your hood over the top of that so you don't have exposed skin. Then you put your helmet on. Then you uh, put your gloves on and you go like this and they check you. And if you have one thing off, you have to do it all over again. And if it's a state test, you fail. So your instructors would look you over and then declare you ready to enter into the burn building. The burn building is a big concrete building, kind of like what we have over there at the fire department, although that one is not rated for burning. Um, burn buildings are concrete block buildings, and they put pallets in there, light them on fire, and we go in and fight the fire. And so we would go in to enter it. And you might ask, you know, the instructors are like, they're so particular about everything. Why are they so particular? It's, well, because fire is really hot. If you have any exposed skin at all, it's going to burn when you go into the burn building. If you have just a little bit hanging out right here, sometimes your hood wouldn't come over and over the top of your mask, you're going to know when you come out of that building because it's going to be burned. And you do that because you need to protect your body's largest organ, which is your skin. And not only that, if your mask isn't totally sealed in a real fire, that would be a very quick and painful death, inhaling superheated smoke and filled with all kinds of poisons from stuff burning in houses today. And we do that, and we're so particular about that, because we want to help our firefighters in doing their job. 
and saving lives and mitigating property damage. Well, you know, God has done kind of the same thing for us. He's giving us a suit of protection for us. And it's made to take the heat of being a Christian in today's world. It's able to take that poison that the enemy keeps trying to throw at us and neutralize it. And the armor of God, and the armor of God is something that you may have heard a dozen different sermons on or a dozen different teachings. It's a subject of many famous preacher sermons and their books and sermon series that you can buy online. And... As I was studying for this morning's message, I've, I've taught on this in the past myself, and as I was studying for this morning's message this week, I noticed something I never had noticed before, and I wanted to show you it this morning. So we're going to be approaching the armor of God from a little different angle this morning. So we're going to read the scripture, and then we're going to go in and dissect it a little bit. So Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And Father God, I ask, Lord, as we go through this, that you help us to see this armor in a different way, Lord. A lot of us think of armor of something that we put on before we attack or before we go into battle. But help us to see the army or the armor, Lord, the way that you have intended it. To be able to stand in the fight and see the salvation of our God. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you just anoint your word this morning. And help it to change us, help it to bless us, and help it to instruct us. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said a moment ago, I want to look at the armor of God a little bit differently this morning. Oftentimes when, when people teach on this, they take apart the armor of God, they talk about all the, the separate pieces, and dig into each one. And I want to take a little bit of a different approach on this Pentecost Sunday and look at it more as a whole and what it represents, even as we get into the specifics of the different pieces. And the first thing I want to point out is that there is an imperative about the armor of God that we should look at this morning. And that word imperative, it means a thing of most importance. So as we look at Paul's teaching on the armor of God, what is the most important use and function of this armor? I'll give you a hint. He says it three times in verses 
um, actually four times in verses 10, 13, and 14. And when the Bible repeats itself like that, it's saying, pay attention. There is a major truth here that you need to see to understand what is coming next. And that imperative is to stand. And I know it sounds simple. You may be thinking, wait a minute, God gives me all this cool armor. He, He puts all this stuff on me and then tells me to simply stand. He doesn't want me to fight. He doesn't want me to charge into battle, waving a battle axe over my my head and, and crying a war cry. He doesn't want me to do any of that. No, God said to stand. Let me point you somewhere else in the Bible to show you this fact. In Revelation 19, it describes the Valley of Megiddo as the armies of of the world come together for the last battle against God. There's millions and millions and millions of people in this valley on northern Israel ready to fight against the armies of God. Heaven opens up and the Son of God comes back in the clouds. And I want you to notice something in these verses. In Revelation 19.14 it says, The armies of heaven were following Jesus, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He, Jesus, treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now verse 21 the rest were killed with the sword coming out of the, of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And you may ask, wait a minute, aren't we going to be in this army? Yes. We will be following Jesus out. What will we be doing? Will we be charging against the enemy? Will we be yelling a war cry, swinging battle axes and swords and bows and arrows or, and all that stuff? No. We are going to stand and witness the salvation and victory of our God. What does God tell us to do with our armor while we are here? To stand, to witness the salvation and victory of our God. And you may think, well, why doesn't he have us fight? We want to fight. If you're like me, I want to fight. I want, I, I want to get in the ring. I, I want to put up my dukes. I want to, I want to get in there and, and, and box some demons. Well, let me ask you this. What happens in a boxing ring or a UFC fight, if that's your thing, and you land a knockout blow? What happens? Fight's over, right? You don't get to pounce on the guy and keep hitting him, not even in the UFC. They, they'll pull you off him and say, fight's over. You see, Jesus landed the knockout punch to Satan on Calvary. The battle's over. All we have to do is stand and witness the salvation and victory of our Lord. Now, the enemy is still going to try to attack us, but he's kind of like a guy on the mat that's like semi-conscious going like this. Like, he might try to slap your leg or something, but he's an ineffective foe. If you stand there with the full armor of God and full faith and trust in Jesus, he can't hurt you. He will still send his minions to try to take, a, take us out or cause us to stray away from God's righteous path 
and the mission he's given us, but Satan is a defeated foe. He is not God's equal. He is a defeated, created being. So we're still going to need armor. We're still going to, to get some arrows slung our way. And just like everyone on the fire ground has protective gear on whether you're going into the house fire or not, God has protected us against the attacks of the evil one. And that brings us to the reason for the armor. The reason is seen in verse 12 when it says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Now I've read probably a dozen, two dozen books, if, if not more, on spiritual warfare. There's books that went all the way out into the crazy land of saying that you have to confront the demons yourself and demand their name and, and you can curse them and make them stop you know, harassing your area, stuff like that. And I've also been all the way on the other end that says you don't have to do anything. The, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Now, being part of the Pentecostal church, I've seen it toward the former end there, where it says that we have to, to do things to, to defeat the devil in our area. Maybe we have to dance in the spirit so we trample the enemy under our feet. I've read that unless you're crying out and screaming in tongues, that your prayers against hell are ineffective. Well, let me tell you this. None of that is necessary. Again, Jesus has already won. He's already defeated Satan's army. Us having to dance or twirl banners or screaming in tongues, it'll give you a good workout, but it has really no effect on the strengths and plans of the enemy. The only thing that works in spiritual warfare is humble and repentant prayer on behalf of the saints. Isaiah 30, 15 says, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. And quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. We're people of action. We want to do something. That is why God's way is the exact opposite of the way that we think as human beings. We want to fight. We want to slay demons. We want to rout 10,000 of the enemy. Those ideas may sell books, but it's not the Bible. The Bible tells us to stand. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it says that the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, we have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And that's why I'm passionate about teaching Bible. It's so that you are equipped to stand. You'll be equipped to stand before a crowd of people who might hate what you're saying, but you'll still be calm, showing the love of Jesus and being sure in your faith to give an answer for the hope that you have. Because truth will always defeat the lies of the enemy. That's the mission of those powers and principalities and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. It's to promote Satan's lies and deceive as many people as possible and keep them out of the kingdom of God. Do we think they're doing a good job in our day today? 
We can't even tell what a man or a woman is. They're doing a great job. If you would have said that five years ago, you would have looked at me and said, you're nuts, Pastor, that we're going to be where we are today. I think we're going to be in five more years. This is why we need to stand, why we need to put on this armor. Jesus said, people under deception hate truth. In John 3.19, Jesus said, this is the truth. Light has come into the world. But people loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. I want you to remember that when you get thrown insults. Remember that when they're calling you names. Remember that when they even try to cause you harm or even kill you. It's not you they hate. It's a person whose armor you're wearing. It's a spiritual force of evil driving them to hate you. Now that we've looked at the imperative to stand and the reason for the armor, let's look at the armor itself. In verse 14 it says, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So let's break down the the components of the armor a little bit. What's the belt of truth? The Word of God. It's the Word of God. It holds the rest of the armor in place. It's a thing that binds the entire thing and helps it to work. It's God's word, the pure gospel. The gospel that says sin is wrong, hell is hot, but God loves you so much that he doesn't want you to go there. So he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have life eternal in heaven. Everything in this book can be condensed down to that simple statement. 66 books, two testaments written over 4,400 years gives you everything we need to know about God and his truth and it is all summarized within John chapter 3. And I want to show you one more thing about the belt of truth. In John 1.1 it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's saying that God is his word. In John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So this belt of truth is Jesus. He is our belt of truth, holding that breastplate of righteousness. Let's look at that. The breastplate of righteousness is something that's held down by the belt of truth, and it guards our hearts and our lungs. Spiritually speaking, the heart is the center of our will and wants and desires. It's the way it's written of in the Bible. It sets the direction of our life. And the lungs represent the breath of life that God breathes into every one of us. As Job 32.8 says, it's a spirit within a man, the breath of the Almighty that gives him understanding. It's what sets us apart from all the other animals on this planet is we have the breath, the image of God that is poured into us. 
Whether you're saved or unsaved, everybody has at Imago Dei, that image of God placed within them at their creation. After his resurrection in John 21, Jesus, it says that Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit onto the to the believers. That was the Holy Spirit coming back in and taking up residence within us. On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came down with tongues of fire and empowered the disciples to be able to spread that gospel with the evidence of speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In fact, the Greek word for spirit is the word pneumos which is what we use for in the medical field to refer to the lungs. Pneumonia is an infection within the lungs, for example. And we take that from there. And that's why words, in fact, can even bring spiritual life or death. But this is also why the breastplate of righteousness guards that area of our body. It protects our heart. It helps guide our heart. It keeps us from the devil's schemes. And it protects that that life-giving Holy Spirit within us so that the enemy's arrows can't penetrate and cause us to go astray. Let's also consider for a moment this. In 1 Corinthians 5.21, it says, for, him, his, for our sake, he made him to be sin who no, knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So who is our righteousness? Jesus. Jesus is our breastplate of righteousness. He is the one who guards our heart and lungs and spirit against the attacks of the enemy. I say, okay, what about the footwear? The footwear represents the gospel. The very gospel that Jesus told us to spread to the entire world. You may wonder, what does God want me to do? It's found right there at the end of Matthew. The Great Commission tells us to go make disciples of all nations. In the first century, the only way to get there was to walk. That's why there's such an emphasis on footwear. Footwear is meant to walk the road that God has paid for us. But your footwear is also about Jesus. The shield of faith that extinguishes all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Well, let me ask you, Christian, what is your faith in? Jesus. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Therefore, the, the devil's arrows just fall impotent before you. I've often, I've heard of many pastors say that when the devil comes knocking, you ask Jesus to answer that door. And the devil will flee. The helmet of salvation the Bible tells us to take every thought and make it obedient to Christ. It's the acceptance of the truth of the gospel message that helps us conform to the image of Jesus placed within us at salvation. Again, it's Jesus. It's putting on Jesus. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Well, again, John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word. He is our sword. You can yell Scripture at the devil. That's a good thing. Devil's tempting you. Quoting Scriptures of why you can't do that is a good thing. Jesus did it. So it's a good thing. 
And speaking the words of temptation and spiritual attack has power. But it also isn't the entire point. The point is Jesus is the word. He is the sword. He is the one that attacks and does battle for us. Remember, we went to Revelation chapter 19, and it said that Jesus slays the enemy with the sword that comes out of his mouth, the very word of God. So Jesus is the the sword of the Spirit. It goes back to this point. Jesus is the mighty warrior, not us. He's a general. He's a captain. He's a sergeant. He's a foot soldier. Everything that comes to spiritual warfare is Jesus. I point you back to the Old Testament. Where all those Old Testament battles happened, where God just pitted the enemy against one another. That they never raised a sword. Remember Gideon. Gideon starts out with 32,000 men to go against an army that numbered into hundreds and hundreds of thousands. What did God say? You have too many people. You have too many people. He goes, you guys go and defeat them with the 32,000. You're just going to puff up your chest and say you did it on your own. So let's, let's get rid of some of them. And through a couple of different criteria, he whittles it down to just 300 men. These weren't, just three, these weren't like 300 Spartans, the best of the best. These were the least of the least that he whittled them down to. These were farmers. These were probably largely slaves. And you ask, well, how does God take these people and go against a a force so vast they couldn't even see the ground because they covered it like locusts, the Bible says? Well, they didn't. God did. They just stood and saw the salvation of their God. I want us to remember that this morning. One of the things the enemy can try to put on us is make it sound like it's all up to us. It's all up to him. And a matter of fact, it's so up to him, he's already done it. We just have to stand in his victory. We just have to stand in the faith that he has already done the work. And no matter what we do here on earth, he wins. Stand in that. I'm not saying be lazy. I'm not saying don't do things for the church. Of course we're supposed to do that. I'm just saying God has already won. If you knew you were going to go into a a contest and know that that you're going to win no matter what, wouldn't you just fight like crazy because you know you're going to win? That's how God wants us to live in these last days. And we end with the last verse. The army of God comes with a power source. And that's verse 18. It says, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. The armor of God has a power source. It needs to function appropriately. And on this Pentecost Sunday, we need a rebirth of spirit-led prayer in our lives, our homes, and in our churches. And prayer has always been the lifeblood and lifeline of the church. It's our direct connection to Jesus. 
Praying in languages we know has power, but praying in spiritual languages, known as praying in tongues, is even more powerful. In the book of Acts chapter 2, we see the birth of the church when God restores to humanity the power of the Holy Spirit. With even with all of our technology and fancy gadgets of today, we still need God's power. We still need to be eagerly seeking his will, his power, and his presence for our lives. Amen?